before we sing this next song, I was uh, noticing the, in the news this week, uh, as you guys probably did, uh, the news out of California and the earthquakes happening. And I don't know, has anyone ever experienced an earthquake before? We have a couple. I have never, I have never experienced an earthquake before. And I was trying to imagine, you know, what, what that might feel like and how disorienting that would be to have, you know, have the ground itself, which we would consider to be, you know, the most solid thing that we can can stand on, have that move underneath our feet. Mm. And from a, from a spiritual aspect, to me, it just kind of reminds me that the things in this earth that we, that we put our hope in, the things that we put our trust in, they're very shakable. And one of the promises from Hebrews that I love is, you know, that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And, you know, this song kind of reminds me of that as well. Just this idea that in the middle of a changing world, in the middle of a world that is very much shakable that God's promise stands firm. Just a, a few announcements this morning before Steve comes up. Uh, the first is just uh, want to just shout out a thank you to all those who uh, helped with the 4th of July uh, celebration this last week. It was just a, a neat time to get together and share fellowship, encouragement, uh, time together. I know we had people running the popcorn machine and the, and the ICs with all kinds of age ranges. So that was just really neat to see uh, so many people pitching in and helping out to, to just make that a great time together. A couple more reminders. This next Sunday, we are starting a new series titled Summer Training for Spiritual Fitness. So today we are closing out our, our time in Hebrews. So that'll be kind of kind of neat to start something new and uh, that'll run through throughout the rest of the summer months. Uh, the last just cool thing is if you didn't see the Creekside News on Friday, the Haiti fundraiser came back. Uh, $842 was raised for Haiti. So let's... let's uh, So thank you to all, all the kids and uh, volunteers that helped uh, make that happen. So with that, I will turn it over to Steve. All right. A yeah, big shout out to all who were helping out this last week at the 4th of July party we had. I sure appreciate it, especially want to uh, commend Anand and Mark, uh, the outreach team. And uh, I know I shouldn't mention certain people, but... Uh, you know, Ken was here about every day, I think, uh, preceding uh, up to and even after the, the deal. So Ken Taylor needs, uh, uh, doesn't need, but uh, thanks, Ken. And I know he wouldn't want me to announce it, but uh, yeah, so, yes. Yeah, he goes, uh, he goes the extra two miles. So we're, we're grateful, grateful and appreciative of that. And, and not to take away from anybody else. Everybody was great. People showed up early to set up stuff. I know the deacons uh, did a lot of extra work getting stuff ready and putting things back. So thank you so much. And great to have everybody out. And it was good to see the, a good turnout. A lot of you invited your friends, family and stuff. So that was really good. Uh, I'd like to begin our time with prayer. Father, uh, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. And I pray with the psalmist that you'd open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful truths from your law. 
And Father, I ask that we wouldn't just understand uh, these things. We wouldn't just know them in our heads, but that you would translate that into our hearts and actions that come as a result of attitudes that have been changed or informed or at least reinvigorated because of our understanding of your word. And so I pray that you do your work to transform us, to be the people of God you want us to be. And for those who are here who maybe just aren't yet, have, have not yet crossed the threshold of full surrender to, to Jesus Christ, that they might see uh, their need for that and, and take that step, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few years ago, our family took a vacation and on the vacation one of the things that we had planned was a, a day hike and so uh, that's a picture too small I guess but uh, we've seen it. Uh, it it's okay it's a picture of us uh, above it is the uh, one of the falls in Yosemite National Park and so we had hiked up what's called the mist trail and so there are two waterfalls I think this was Nevada Falls Vernal Falls is one and then Nevada Falls I may have them mixed up but I think this is Nevada Falls and so you hike up a regular the last few hundred yards are rather rigorous to get to the top but in order to do that, we had to, to, to do a little planning. I made a mental checklist in my brain of things that we, resources that we needed. And so we had to have proper shoes and we had to have proper clothing. And of course, me, I had to wear a hat and people had their sunglasses on. And so we, and, and water, water, plenty of water. You don't go on a hike without water. And so we needed all those resources in order to make our little trip, little expedition successful. Because preparation and planning prevent any sort of uh, forgetfulness or any negligence of details that would derail the fun. You know, if you don't plan it and you don't have it, then it derails what would be normally fun. Well, the, the author of the book of Hebrews understood, and his was not about fun, but about faith. He knew that there was uh, necessary resources that needed to be in place for the people to whom he was writing then and now to successfully navigate the, the troubled seas of living by faith. And so what he does at, at the close of his letter is he provides us with a, a checklist, if you will, of Resources that are needed for believers to remain faithful in a world that is oftentimes hostile to us. And so I have looked at the letter and we, we've looked at this text theologically. And we've learned that Christ is supreme. We've learned the supremacy of Christ and of, of the superiority of Christianity over old Judaism. Historically, we've seen that there are all these examples of authentic living, living by faith that we're called to follow. Emotionally, we've been challenged and encouraged and hyped up, you know, to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Therefore, don't grow weary and lose heart. Practically, we've been given all sorts of information and challenges as to what an authentic faith looks like. How do we, what is this worshiping with reverence and awe, what does it practically translate into? 
And so now, there, as we close, the author says, yeah, wait, wait a second. Now, he didn't really say this, but in my mind, he's kind of like, okay, I got, a, I got a few more things I just want to kind of close out with and leave you with in what he says is a short little sermon, okay? And so we see at the end, these closing remarks, the author of Hebrews reveals those critical resources that are necessary for us, for our practice to align with our profession so that our conduct is consistent with our confession and so that we will live this life of enduring faith and finish, the line, cross the finish line uh, joyously. And so I invite you to turn in your Bibles or turn in your, or get to your device and find it there or if you have underneath a seat in front of you, there's a Bible and the page is listed for you there in the bulletin. And we're going to look at verses 20 through 25, the last section in the book of Hebrews where the author concludes his letter by highlighting four essential resources that are available to God's children that will help us remain faithful, okay? So I'm going to read the text, and then uh, I will begin to, or try to unpack it for us and look at these four different resources, beginning with verse 20. Now, the God of peace, who brought up from the dead that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I shall see you. Greet all of your leaders and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Seems pretty straightforward. And the first resource that I see the author referring to in the text is that we need God's power working in us. We need God's power working in us. And the prayer that the author provides, and which is what verses 20 and 21 are, it's prayer. The prayer that he provides answers three important questions. And the first question is, who's doing the work? And the author prays to and fully expects an answer from God. The God who is the source of peace. That's how I understand the the phrase, the God of peace. The God of peace is the God who is the source of peace. And he is the source of peace because through the cross of Christ, he has eliminated the hostility of a holy God towards a sinful people. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says, Through him, having reconciled all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. To reconcile is to take a relationship of hostility, a relationship of enmity and strife, and to change it into a relationship of, of peace and goodwill. That's what to reconcile is. Now, I know you, we have several accountants in our congregation, so the accountants, think about it this way. You're reconciling the books. You, you want to know discrepancies, okay? There's no differentiation. There is complete harmony. That's the, the idea behind reconciliation. I don't know if you saw on the news this past week, but there was a reporter out in Portland, Oregon, 
uh, Andy Go, and he was assaulted by some uh, protesters, Antifa protesters, and he was beaten and, and stuff thrown on him and swearing and profanity cast at him. Now, if he were to sit down with the people who perpetrated these offenses against him and they worked things out and they became in an agreement with each other, that would be a reconciliation. That would be a reconciliation. Well, the text says that now the God of peace, this is the God who is the source of peace, he brought about peace through the great shepherd. The great shepherd, he says. The first time that this phrase, through his death and resurrection, the death and resurrection of the great shepherd. He brought him up from the dead, the text says. He brought up the great shepherd from the dead. Now, it's a reference here, is a cross-reference is back to Isaiah chapter 63. Because Moses is referred in Isaiah 63, verse 11, to as the shepherd of Israel. The shepherd of Israel who brought up the people of Israel out of and through the Red Sea. Which is a picture. Which is a, a foreshadowing of the, the person and the work of Jesus. Because Moses, the prophet of the Old Testament, who was leading the people of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt, the slavery, which represents slavery, up out of the Red Sea, which would be the captivity, the death, he brought them up out into deliverance or salvation, which is a picture of what Jesus Christ has done in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. And so, Jesus... The great shepherd, if you look at the text, it kind of defines who the great shepherd is because at the end it says, even Jesus our Lord. The great shepherd, even Jesus our Lord, has referred to himself in John chapter 10 verse 11 as the good shepherd. Who does what? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And it's this good shepherd who laid down his life from, for the sheep whom the God of peace, the God who was seeking to bring about peace, raised from the dead, brought up from the dead in order to accomplish that peace and to provide that peace, that lack of enmity, satisfying God's wrath through his punishment of his son so that those who would trust in his son would be freed from the wrath of God and enjoy peace with God forever. That's Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, Declared righteous by virtue of our trust in Christ, we have peace with God. So there's no longer any animosity or hostility towards us. That Christ's shed blood was the only permanent and satisfactory sacrifice. That it was the only permanent and satisfactory sacrifice is proven by the fact that it is God who brought up from the dead. He raised him from the dead. Paul says at the end of Romans chapter 4, verse 25, he was delivered up, that is Jesus, on account of our sins, because of our sin. He was raised again in order to bring about our justification, our being declared righteous. So the death and the resurrection are both necessary. The death paid the price. The resurrection proved that it was a satisfactory payment that God made through Jesus Christ so that all who would believe would have that payment applied to them and be delivered and freed. And so that's how he made peace. He brought him up from the dead. My question this morning to you is, do you know peace? 
Do you know peace? Do you know peace with God? We're not a people who know peace mostly. If you know peace and you can say, yes, I do, because I'm trusting in Jesus Christ and his death alone as the payment for my sin, then you can rejoice because that peace is permanent. There will never be a day when there is hostility or the wrath of God will never be poured out on you. And if you don't know that peace, then my invitation to you is to trust Christ as your Savior. Because if you don't know peace, you will only know punishment. And it's not my desire or any of our desire here that you would know that. So that's who's doing the work. Well, what was the work he was doing? We see, it says in verse 21, equip you, that the, that the God who raised Jesus from the dead would equip you, the God whose power raised Jesus from the dead and provided the opportunity for peace, he would equip you. And now, and then the verse says, for every good thing, to do his will, working in us. So equip us and working in us are parallel. It's the same thought as is doing good and pleasing him. Okay, So those two thoughts are parallel. He equips us and works in us. So God works in us so we can do his work. God works in us so we can do his will. And if God doesn't work in us, then we don't do his will. And we don't do his work. And that's what he's trying to say, I think. And it's interesting to me that if, uh, for believers then and now, to live an authentic life of faith requires God's work within us. John MacArthur put it this way. <clears throat> if we attempt to live the Christian life simply by virtue of possessing pure doctrine, and I would stop and say, you can't live the Christian life without pure doctrine. Okay? But if that's all we have, or he goes on to say, and having the finest examples but void of God's power, we are doomed. To equip means to prepare. It means to make suitable. I was thinking about this, and I, this is just the way my mind works, so you have to forgive me. But if you are doing uh, exercises and you're doing like workouts for your, for your core or for, you know, like ab workouts to strengthen your core, you know, it prepares you for a lot of stuff. And, you know, athletes and trainers and everybody will tell you that your core, that's from here to here, you know, from your thighs to your pecs, that's the, the core. You do that, you can, do, you can run, you can jump, you can run faster, you can be stronger. And now you say, well, that doesn't, you can ride your bicycle better. You say, I don't care, I don't do any of those things. You can weed your garden better, you can rake the lawn, you can lift up the, the mixing bowl, all that stuff. Anything that you do normally during the day is better if your core is strengthened. It's preparation that makes you suitable for anything that you're asked to do. Here the text says that it is God working in us that makes us suitable that God makes us suitable. He equips us and works in us, spiritually fine-tuning us. I'm not a musician, but, you know, you see musicians, whenever they come into the place, you know, they got, the, you know, like, I, I don't know, I, I wish Chris was here. You know, he has his cello, and, you know, they, they come up there, and they start 
plucking on the thing and then they you know, start listening to it and I have no idea what they're doing. But they, they, they're tuning their instrument. God tunes us, you know. Spiritually works in us so that we're able to do his will. What is good works and what is pleasing. Remember those two go together in verse 21. Good works and what is pleasing. What is pleasing to God? First John chapter 3 verse 22 yeah, I think we're going to see that one on the screen. It says, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because he, we keep his commandments. Now, listen to this. We keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. Obedience is what pleases God. Okay. Obedience is what pleases God. In chapter 13, which we're concluding, but all up until this point, we have seen numerous examples of what it means to please God. Worship and rever with reverence and awe that's acceptable to God includes these kinds of things. Our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So are we loving each other? You say, well, you know, and it doesn't really matter whether you're single, whether you're married. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how young you are. It doesn't matter. That applies to all of us. Love our brothers. In our households, young people, that means dad and mom. That means your brothers and sisters. You're supposed to love them in Christ if they're in Christ. Our neighbors, everybody. Hospitality. That's in chapter 13. We're to honor marriage and honor our spouses if we're married. Contentment. Remember, not the love of money, but love of God. We're supposed to be, and we're challenged there to remember and respect and obey our leaders. And that's what Bob talked about last week was respecting and, and obeying our leaders. Doctrinal purity, words of praise and honor and exalting God. And so I say, well, okay, so are we doing that? We got all that done. So he's reminding them. This is what God is pleasing to God is we obey. So you just wonder, well, I don't know what that whole Hebrews, I don't know what we're supposed to get out of that. Just go back and read chapter 13, okay? And you'll, you'll see at least some practical stuff there. And the interesting thing to me is what I see in the text is that God enables the obedience he requires. That's always been encouragement to me. God enables the obedience which he requires. Remember back in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus, Jesus said that he came not to uh, abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And I'm going, well, okay, I'm done. Because my righteousness not, does not exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. But then he goes on and gives you the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. Do you know what? The Spirit of God empowers a believer to do what God requires of us good deal because apart from him we can do nothing it's interesting to me that the the christian living faithful and fruitful christian living is not merely self-effort this is not just about moralistic teaching it's not just about suck it up pull up your bootstraps and obey jesus it's spirit empowered it's a spirit empowered conformity to the will of God it's a, I want to and God enables me to when I can't do it and I find it fascinating that what our what our author here is praying for 
The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2 has already prescribed and promised is happening. So I want you to look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. But now, much more, in my absence, Paul says to the church at Philippi. Now, read the words carefully. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That sounds like we have a responsibility. And we do. We do our part. Now, keep reading. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I don't know about you, but that is exciting to me. That is encouraging to me because I don't, I have to work and God works. It's kind of like uh, God doing it. Paul said this is what happened to him. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. It says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me did not prove vain, but I labored even more. I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So it's Paul and Jesus together producing this. In 2 Corinthians chapter five, 3, verse 5, says a similar thing. He says, not that we are adequate in and of ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is where? It's from God. Lenski says this. He says, we are to do, yet all the while God is doing. So there is human responsibility and there's divine activity that brings believers into conformity to the will of God and the way of God. How is God doing his work? The text says at the end of verse 21, through Jesus Christ or through Jesus our Lord, to whom be glory forever and ever. He does it through, so with Paul we say, I've been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but what? But Christ lives in me. I don't know about you, but that's encouraging to me. That is, it's not just a matter of me sucking it up and trying harder. That's not going to do it. It has to be the Spirit of God working in me and you to make it happen. And the Christ whose power rescues us, it's Christ whose power refines us. He is exalted. He gets the glory. And he is honored forever and ever. Amen. That's the end. I heard somebody say one time, this is why, I don't know why people say also forever and ever. Well, that's in the Bible. You know, that just means... He is deserving of glory. And the fascinating thing is 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. You can just write it down. If, if the Son is glorified, because there's some question at the end of verse 21. Is it God who is the subject of the sentence back in verse 20? At the end of verse 21, is it God who is to be glorified? Or is it Jesus who is the most immediate uh, antecedent? Well, it's both. Jesus is glorified because he's the exalted one. He's the one refining and rescuing us. But God, if Jesus is glorified, then immediately, then God is glorified ultimately. So God's power working in us. Secondly, God's word directing us. Verse 22, he says, But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation. Bear with is a command to endure in the face of difficulty. And the author considers this word, now this word means from chapter 1, verse 1, until now, this word of exhortation 
He considers the sermon a sermon in written form that's filled with difficult truths for difficult times. Remember, they were waning in their faith, waxing in their faith, struggling because they were being persecuted, because they had left Judaism and it, they were tempted to go back to it because it seemed a little more comfortable, it seemed a little more practical, it seemed a little more tangible. And now they're separated from that and they're being persecuted and they go, what do we do? Difficult truth. For difficult times, Hebrews forcefully warns the readers, both ancient and modern, of the dangers of apostasy and calls us to single-minded devotion to Christ. That's not easy stuff. That's not easy stuff. So now, I'm sure there have been times, the readers then, and I'm sure as we've walked through the book of Hebrews, for those of you who've been with us the whole time, you may be tired of the stern warnings. You know, watch out, look out, careful. You've been maybe confused by all of this foreshadowing of the work of Christ in the Old Testament, and the Old Covenant, that now is fulfilled in Jesus in the New Covenant. And you've scratched your head and maybe said, I don't know, this seems a little bit deep. It's too much Old Testament stuff. Complex issues about the person and the work of Jesus. He is our high priest. We don't know what a priest is. We've never had a priest. We don't practice that stuff. Other people do that stuff. And so we've been confused. The author calls upon them. He calls upon us to endure. Endure the difficult challenges of this text. Listen carefully. And just do what it says. Apply it. And we do that because we have the Cliff Notes version. I don't know, do you college kids use no Cliff Notes? You know what that is? No. It's the, it's, the, it's the abbreviated version. You know, when I was in college, you used to have books, and they'd have the Cliff Notes version. Well, the book was to be a 500-page book, and the Cliff Notes version was like 85 pages. So you just read the Cliff Notes version, and you'd get the essence of what's in the book, and then you're ready to take the test. I never bought Cliff Notes, but that's what they were. Okay, so we have the Cliff Notes version of, of the text. It's a sermon that you could read well, I don't know who could read it. I didn't try this out, but they, it's been said. You could read this in an hour. And for them, that's a short sermon. So just be thankful. Okay, so for them, that's a short sermon. All right? You're blessed, right? No. Uh, you, should go to, you should go to Africa sometime, right? I mean, that's like a three-hour sermon there. Uh, in Hungary, they have three or four people that preach. You know, one person gets up and preach, and then the next guy gets up preaches on the same passage, and he might go longer. Yeah, and then, you know, so it's just the way it is around the world. So th this was a short sermon, but it could have been much longer. In the, in the book of Hebrews, we have hint, hints to that. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, and in chapter 9, verse 5, there's indications that I have much more to say to you, the writer says. The other day, I was... I turned off the off-ramp, or gone off the off-ramp, and I was getting ready to turn onto a, a street. And I was confused, because I saw these big orange pylons, you know. And when I went to turn left, there were pylons on the left and on the right, and they were kind of in the middle of the road, so there was space on the left and space on the right. And I was like, where am I supposed to go? Well, between the pylons, okay, is where you go. You make the wrong turn, it's going to be dangerous. It was a difficult thing to know what to do. The text of Scripture is difficult, but we must follow its directions. If we follow the directions of the text, we'll not be led astray. Don't lament the truth. 
Live the truth. Okay? Let's, let's, let's don't lament it. Just live it out. My call to my, the call to myself, the call to us, is to stand and be counted regardless of the cost. You name the name of Jesus, so be a Jesus person. And live for Jesus every day. That means when we read the text and it says we're supposed to honor marriage and marriage being the def- defined as a union of one man and one woman for life, then we honor that in our homes, we honor it in our schools, we honor it in our community. We do so graciously. And we do so unapologetically. We humbly practice and promote sexual purity in an age and a world and a culture of absolute perversity. But we don't do it as those who are, quote-unquote, superior to, but saddened by the destiny of all who live in depravity, whatever that depravity is. We want them to know the king so that they aren't condemned. Conformity to the world, and this is the challenge for me, is a conformity to the world may uh, seem real appealing right now because it will avert temporary hostility from the world. But in actuality, it only camouflages our identity and it, at, at worst, it reveals our insincerity. That we're not really who we say we are. That our profession and our possession are completely different. That our practice doesn't align with our profession, that our conduct is inconsistent with our confession, and that's not where we should be. We are need the work, God's work within us. We need God's word directing us. We need God's people encouraging us. Look at verse 23. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. There are several ways that, that God's people, from I think from this text, that God's people encourage each other to stay faithful. First of all, speaking affectionately to each other. Now, in chapter 3, verse 1, and verse 12, and chapter 10, verse 19, the writer has referred to them as brethren. Okay, that means brothers and sisters in Christ. Now here he talks about our brother Timothy. Those are terms of affection. He says, I want you to know that you mean something to me. And that Timothy means something. He is our family. We are a family. Do we treat each other like family? Or are we just acquaintances who meet on Sunday? Do we really care what's going on in each other's lives? Does it really matter? If you're brothers and sisters, it matters. And you know when someone comes up and they... Now, you know, some people kind of get weirded out if we we say that to each other. Hey, brother, whatever you're doing. But I don't know. It's kind of biblical. You know, I mean, you remember back a long time ago, they said, well, I don't know about this born again stuff. Well, it's in the Bible. You know, so if it's in the Bible, we shouldn't be afraid of it. Hi, brother. Hi, sister. Now, we didn't want to use it flippantly, but if we really mean it, then there's a, an affection that, that says we're connected in a way that other people with whom we have interaction are not connected, and we like that. And that means something to us. I think that's what the writer of Hebrews has communicated to them. Hey, brethren, hey, our brother Timothy, it, it matters. 
that others care. And then the question is, we want that. Do we have people in our lives that are speaking that to us? And are we speaking that way to other people? And secondly, seeing God's work in other believers' lives. Why would he mention that Timothy, who has been released, he says, our brother Timothy has been released. Because they probably knew Timothy. I think it's the same Timothy from Colossians 1. It's the same Timothy that we have who wrote the, the books of First and Second Timothy. Acts chapter 16, Timothy. They knew the dude. He says, take notice. Which means pay attention to this. It's something that you're uh, aware of that's of interest. Uh, Alan mentioned the earthquakes in California. Somebody, you know, we, there's damage. There's people who've been hurt. There's all kinds of stuff that's happened as a result of, do you, have you listened to or watched the news and heard of what's going on in California? There's an earthquake or more than one earthquake. There was an earthquake before and yeah, would you like to be driving down the road? And Oh, okay, there's a little crack in the road here. It tears your wheel off. I was actually in an earthquake once. Um, Marla and I were in seminary. I was in seminary. Marla was married to me, so she wasn't in seminary, but she was with me. Okay, so we were married, and we lived in our first home, which is a 12 by 52 trailer, okay, motorhome. And we're standing in the motorhome, and all of a sudden, the thing was rocking. You know what I thought was happening? I thought, oh, some of my buddies are out there, and they're just pushing on the thing, you know, just kind of rocking it back and forth and back and forth. And I come out, what's going on? Oh, it's an earthquake. The New Madrid Fault somewhere in Missouri had uh, let off some steam, and it was, it was real. Take notice. Pay attention. He says, pay attention. Timothy is out. I think he told him that to encourage him. You people are you're being persecuted. You're struggling. You're suffering. Isn't it encouraging to hear God's work in other people's lives? When we hear about God's, the victories that God accomplishes in, in other believers' lives, that's kind of an encouragement to us. Stay faithful. God hasn't abandoned us. He's still with us. He's working. Let's be encouraged by that. Then spending time together. And Paul says, hey, you know what? Guess what? If it works out, Timothy's going to come with me when I visit. Did I say Paul? I think I did. The author of Hebrews, okay, which I do not know as Paul, okay, and I'm not saying it's Paul, although this sounds a little Pauline, but I'm not saying it's Paul, okay, because I don't know. Nobody knows. Anyhow, but the author of Hebrews says, Timothy, if Timothy comes, doesn't matter, I'm coming, but Timothy may come with me. Now, I don't know about you, but I think it's, we, we, some of us hung out last Sunday down at Banner Lakes, I get that right, Banner Lakes, is that what it's called? Okay, that was cool. We had fun. We enjoyed each other's company. It was kind of fun to get together. Thursday, we had a great time with the 4th of July celebration. Hanging out, talking to people, doing that stuff. You know what? When you go on a short-term mission trip, one of the best things that happens on a short-term mission trip is a short-term mission trip. People go and they are an encouragement to the missionaries who are on the field, slugging it out, who are discouraged and feel like nobody cares. And somebody shows up, they travel thousands of miles to come to see us, to encourage us. I think that's cool. And I think that's why the author of Hebrews wrote to tell them this is good. And finally, by showing concern for each other, greet all your leaders, he says. Now, he's mentioned the leaders a few times. Chapter 
13, verse 7 and verse 17. Leaders, he validates and he exalts these leaders that they're supposed to remember, that they're supposed to respect, and they're supposed to obey. The plurality of leaders. He says, say hi to your leaders for me. And then all the saints, because some of them weren't there when they read the letter. Some of them may have been gone, but make sure they know that I care about them too. Because I care about everybody in the family of God. And then he closes when he says, they all matter. And then those from Italy greet you. So there must have been some Italian believers with him when he wrote the letter. And he just says, they're saying hi too. You know, they're with you. They understand what's going on. The author intentionally communicates that the readers, that to the readers, that he cares about them and others care about them. Do we communicate to brothers and sisters in Christ that we care? Do we have other brothers and sisters in Christ that communicate to us that they care? That it matters? See, God working in us, God's word directing us, God's people encouraging us, and God's grace sustaining us. Last thing that he says is grace be with you all. Now, if you read the New Testament, you see that quite frequently, but it's not just an afterthought. It's not just like, oh, well, he didn't have anything else to say, so he just says, well, grace, you know, that's a good thing. Grace is a good God word. Grace to you all. Well, you know what grace is? It's the undeserved favor of God in saving us and in sustaining us. I want you to know the fullness of God's grace. The fullness of his unmerited favor that rescued you from darkness and brought you into the light. I want you to know the the unmerited favor of God that will empower and sustain you in this life. In every facet of life. That was Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to go back to that slide in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10. But by the grace of God I am what I am. He's a believer. Okay, so that's his grace in saving him. His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So God's grace saved him, and God's grace sustained and strengthened him in his service. Same is true for you and me. And I think that's what the author is saying. I want you to know the grace of God. Do you know, as a believer, there's nothing we do except by the grace of God. Nothing. We deserve nothing. And anything we get is, a, is a, a blessing of his grace. I like what some commentator, you don't care, his name is Spick, but you don't care. He says, this grace is a stream of living water flowing through the desert, a power which enables us to withstand every adversity and to reach the promised land. You know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 38, uh, speaking of the Spirit, you'd be like streams of living water springing up within us. He who believes in me, as the Scripture says, from his innermost being shall flow streams of living water. I don't know, I kind of like that. I like, yeah, I've got some... You know, water, some spiritual stuff flowing through my veins, working out through me, 
watering and nourishing and strengthening me. And that's the picture. Warren Wiersbe has described several manifestations of the grace of God that extend beyond the unmerited favor in rescuing us and intentionally reveal his unmerited favor in sustaining us. I'm just going to mention a few of them here quickly. First of all, there's serving grace. And he refers, and I refer to that passage in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, God gives us grace. Do you know when you want to serve, we're doing this thing on Wednesday nights about our gifts. We serve in the grace of God. When you think about serving, I think we want to pray, God, give us grace to serve. Help me to be, give me your grace to serve in the nursery. Give me your grace to teach. Give me your grace to counsel. Give me your grace to guide because we need his grace. We need his favor working on our behalf. Then there is this sacrificing grace. It's, a, you know, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, Paul says there their overwhelming poverty overflowed to generosity. It's like, whoa, they're poor and yet they gave generously. The grace of God was pouring out through them. They were giving sacrificially, you know. And that's what God's grace does. God's grace works in our hearts so that our perspective changes. My perspective changes and so that my practice changes, so that I'm willing to sacrifice my time, my efforts, and my energies for God. Not just for me. That's the sacrificing grace. The grace of God that sacrifices. Then there is suffering grace. Suffering grace. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, I had a thorn in the flesh. And three times I sought the Lord that he would remove the thorn in the flesh. And what was God's response to Paul? My grace is sufficient for you. You know, if you're not suffering now, you will. Uh, and at some point, there's a struggle. And at some point, we're challenged. And many times, is God's grace enough? Will God sustain me through this difficulty? Some of you know the story of Horatio Spafford. He was a very wealthy, successful lawyer in Chicago in the late 1800s. And in the Chicago fire of 1871, he lost a lot of property, valued very highly. Just previous to that, he had lost his only son to death. He decided that he needed a reprieve, he and his family, and so he planned a trip to Europe. Unexpected business kept him home, and so he sent his family ahead of him on the ship, and they were shipwrecked. He lost his remaining children, four daughters, in that shipwreck. As he traveled on the next ship to meet his wife, he penned the words to the song, It Is Well With My Soul. As he came over what is stated to be probably uh, at least near the place where they drown, he wrote these words, When peace like a river attends my way, or sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot you have taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. Suffering grace. Grace that strengthens us in the midst of our suffering so that we can persevere and press on. It's the undeserved favor of God that empowers us to keep going in His service and for His glory. And then there is speaking grace. Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. I wonder, 
Do you struggle with the seasoned speech? Salty speech? I mean, is criticism easier than compliments? You gentle or gruff? Gossip or good news? Speaking grace. And then I, I think about, uh, I was listening to Warren Wiersbe. Actually, I was hearing him preach one time. And, you know, if you don't know who he is, that's fine. It doesn't matter. He's, he's a preacher, okay? This is, we're all preachers. We're all passing on. It's just a matter of some people know. But it doesn't matter. But he, he, he was a really witty guy. And he was sharing about the fact that he was preaching one time and he was meeting people after the service. And one of the ladies in the congregation says, Pastor Wiersbe, uh, do you know, because he had spoken about the fact, he just mentioned in passing, he was going on vacation. Well, Dr. Wearsby, do you know that the devil doesn't take a vacation? And he said to her, well, I don't take my example from the devil. And then he shared with us what I didn't say, but was thinking was that I would, could have said to her was this. Well, I'm sure if you were going on vacation, he would want to go along. He didn't say that. Let our, gra- let our speech be always with grace. Seasoned. And then sustaining grace. Hebrews 13.9 says we're strengthened by grace. We're strengthened by grace. It's good for our souls to find strength from God's favor. And God's work in our lives. The author of Hebrews calls us to authentic faith. And for those who are here this morning and you've never crossed the threshold from unbelief to belief, you've never surrendered your life fully to the lordship of Jesus Christ, the call is to converting faith, conversion faith. You know, the God of peace offers us. We do not have peace inter personally. I mean, for Pete's sake, in the United States, we bicker over whether we should have a celebration in Washington, D.C., you know, on the 4th of July. There's people bantering back and forth about whether a salute to America is a good thing. We do not have peace interpersonally. We don't have peace internally. Many times, most of the time, that's why people are looking to drugs and to power and to money and success, trying to find something to satisfy the ache in our soul. We're not born at peace with God, but we need peace with God. And He offers us the only solution to the thirst of our soul and the person and the work of Jesus. You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We'll have peace, peace indeed. Justified by faith, we have peace with God. You see, our sins have made a separation between us and our God, and God alone is the solution. So my plea to you is, will you receive the peace that the God of peace offers you by putting your trust or your faith in Jesus? It's the only answer. And if you are trusting in Jesus, then the call to us is to living faith, to to live out our faith uh, on a daily basis, to make use of these resources. Only 
those whose conduct matches our confession are truly in the family. And so then we're part of that unshakable kingdom that Alan was talking about that he was referring to that's mentioned in the book of Hebrews, the end of chapter 10, unshakable faith. I have a confession to make. Uh, the little hike that we took on uh, the day hike, one, one little important resource, resource that was neglected was food. Yeah, go figure. We didn't take any food. Well, I shouldn't say that. My middle daughter took like two granola bars and a couple little fruity snacks, you know, and there were six of us. So we're up at the top of the Nevada Falls watching everybody break out their picnic lunch after we've hiked for two and a half hours. Plenty of water. We're starving. We want to give them 10 bucks for, you know, their peanut butter sandwich. The lack of planning and the failure to account for all the resources meant fatigue. And it meant that we not only that we were fatigued, but that we were in discomfort. Didn't, didn't ruin the trip, okay? But it was like, my, I felt badly. It was my, my daughter-in-law's very first hiking trip. <laughs> no food, okay. Uh, hang in there. I mean, we cleared the place out when we got down the mountain. When we went to the Yosemite thing, I think we, we spent the whole wad on uh, two bags of chips, you know? It was just like, I didn't care how much it cost. We are just going to eat something. But you know, if we fail to plan, we fail to take into account, fail to avail ourselves of the resources that God has given to us, God's power at work in us, God's word directing us, God's people encouraging us, and God's grace sustaining us. It's way more serious. And we're going to falter in our faith. We're going to fumble the ball. We're going to discredit the name of Christ and may even prove ourselves that we're not even in the family. We need to avail ourselves of these things. So I ask you, are you supporting or sabotaging God's work in your life? Are the activities you're involved in supporting God's work in your life or are they sabotaging it? Well, God's trying to work, but I keep fighting him tooth and nail because I'm... And you fill in the blank. Are you comforted by God's work in your life? I, I hope as believers you, you can find some comfort there because I do. Because <laughs> I like to work hard and sometimes I think I can do it all. And this text says it can't do any of it apart from God's work. And it's really good to know that God's working. Even when I don't see God working. Even when I don't feel like I'm making progress in my faith. God is still working. Am I submitting to God's word? Well, I, yeah. It's tough. You know, love your neighbors. Honor Marriage, hospitality, love your brothers and sisters. You know, some brothers and sisters aren't very lovable. You know, let's just be honest. It's like, it's like you know, they're prickly pears. I don't really, you know, want to get close to them. Like a sea urchin, you know. <laughs> but God calls us to love them. And, by God, and you know what? I'm that prickly pear to some people. Help me. I need God's grace. I wonder, am I supported by God's people? 
Are there people in my life that come on and say, hey, brother, hey, sister, am I saying that to other people? Am I supporting them? And am I sustained by God's grace? Do I understand whether it's suffering or whether it's service or whether it's speaking that I need the grace of God? And you know, the marvelous thing about, about communion is it brings us back to the, the symbols of, of Jesus' death and, and burial and his body broken and his blood shed that remind us that he is the God of peace who bought with his own blood the possibility for us to be at peace with him so that God would work in us, so that God's word would direct us, so that God's people would encourage us, so that God's grace would sustain us if we simply would believe and trust in Christ. And so if you're here this morning, I just invite you to take a few moments and reflect in your heart and confess any sin that you know of and then join us as we break bread together and, and celebrate what God has done for us so that we can go out and share it with those who don't know. Let's pray. Father, give us grace for each and every day to live for you and to honor you and to serve you. I thank you, Father, for the author of Hebrews and the challenges that have been presented. I pray that the supremacy of Christ and the superiority of Christianity would steal us to stand firm and stand tall, not as arrogant people, but as humble people who've been redeemed. We pray in Jesus' name. Lord, I need